guys. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that we hope will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. We are your hosts with you today. I'm Krista and... I'm Zach. And we are excited to be with you studying in these upcoming chapters of Matthew 19 through 20, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18. We are dedicating this episode to two very important groups of people. First, to Levane Bakery in New York City, who makes incredible cookies and who provided the source material for us creating cookies for our neighborhood yard sale this week, which were great and they sold for a dollar a piece. And also to our mothers, because you're listening to this on Monday, but for us it's Sunday and it's Mother's Day. And we were just barely talking before we recorded um, how how incredibly blessed we are to have the mothers that we have, how much we love them. I was, I, I, I just texted my mother-in-law and said, I don't know if there's many men, if any men that love their mothers-in-law like their own mothers, but I don't know if many men, if any men whose mothers-in-law mother them and, and are are as a parent to them as their own parents. So we're just really lucky to have the moms that we have. Yeah. And we can kind of tie those together because what spurred on this Levain bakery craze, which if you are looking for a copycat recipe, um, Cy Foster from A Bountiful Kitchen has great copycats for these Levain bakeries, which is what we've been making. They're so good. And last year on Mother's Day weekend, I was able to go to New York City with my mom and my sisters, which was just just amazingly fun and awesome. So that was the way I was like thinking I can kind of tie these together a little bit that way, but you know, an episode dedicated to all you mothers out there as well. Um, we love our moms and are grateful, grateful to be bringing you this podcast because they helped mother us. That is true. (laughs) Without our moms, we would not be here. We would not exist. (laughs) Thanks moms. Hey, we also, Hey, one more thing. They're also great fans. They are. They are. They're first fans, probably. Yeah. Thank you, Mom. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we're going to try something new over the next couple of weeks that we're actually really excited about. Um, we are going to do an Understanding Doctrine little segment at the beginning of each episode. Uh, the idea comes, um, as we've talked about some of the basic core church doctrines of the past couple of weeks, we realize... Um, there, it's helpful to have a fresh and faithful view of scriptures, but there are some doctrines that are important to understand that string throughout all scriptures. And we wanted to just approach some of these that maybe um, a fresh and faithful view of that particular doctrine could help us understand and navigate that world just a little bit better. And if you're familiar with um, seminary, maybe you have seminary-aged kids, that is something that has switched over the past few years um, that they don't do scripture mastery anymore. They're doing these doctrinal masteries, this really deeper understanding of these core doctrines supported by scriptures, of course, in that. So I think that's another reason why we thought this would be be a timely thing to to help us as in our own study and to hopefully just have that discussion on these core doctrines for, for our church. So the doctrine we want to start with this week comes from the text of this week. It's the doctrine or doctrines related to marriage and family. And it comes from Matthew chapter 19. 
Uh, At the beginning of that chapter, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they tempt him with questions about marriage and divorce. Uh, And it's this back and forth between them. Again, as is common, they're trying to trip him up with these questions that uh, make him walk a very narrow line between doctrine um, or scripture and oral traditions, etc. But setting that little debate aside, the Savior emphasizes some really basic, simple, but often overlooked truths about marriage and family. Or not overlooked, maybe just less forgotten or less noticed, somewhat forgotten. So this is Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. In response to their question, he answered and said unto them, Now just listen for the simple doctrines about marriage. Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Simple doctrines. He that created everything, created man and woman, and also created the union between man and woman as a way to unite them into one flesh or one soul. In other words, man and woman are created um, in need of companionship, in need of that completion in order to be one flesh. Hence God's commandment that uh, a man and woman should be united in marriage. Of course, the proclamation to the world or the proclamation on the family to the world emphasizes these doctrines in the very first paragraph. We, the first presidents of the church, solemnly proclaim that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. Um, I spent a lot of time over the past couple of years emphasizing with students that word ordained. The word ordained for someone to ordain something means to set it in order. You think of a, of a bishop or someone ordaining someone to a priesthood office. They're setting that person in order. They're taking what they were and changing it into something different. I'm ordaining you to a, a, a new priesthood or a new responsibility. In a similar way, that word is used in that sentence that God ordained marriage between a man and a woman. The simplest way to think about it is God created marriage between a man and woman. It's his invention. He made man and woman, and then he made, he invented this union between man and woman that mirrors his own union as a heavenly parent and which allows us to become complete and fully, fully finished. And I like that because I think it seen through that lens, um, a lot of our connected beliefs and our stances on marriage and family in the world that we live in, where definitions and discussions about marriage and family have become quite complex. It helps us view our own beliefs and our own standards in in a very simple and eternal perspective. One of our favorite talks on this subject is from Elder Christofferson from April of 2015 called Why Marriage, Why Family? And in the beginning of this, he quotes a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer. Zach always had a better German accent than me. 
Actually, let's face it. I never had a German accent. (laughs) But let me read this. One of his letters that he wrote to a niece was um, then published later. It says, Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession. But marriage is more than just something personal. It is a status, an office, just that it is as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. So love comes from you, but marriage above from God. That's perhaps the best quote on marriage, on explaining that doctrine of the relationship between that marriage creates between a man and a woman and God that I think I've ever read anywhere. Yeah. Well, I think especially that last line, um, so love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. And that kind of encapsulates a lot of what you were just explaining in the, within the doctrine of marriage of what we in the church believe and what Christians believe marriage is. Um, there's a great video, and maybe we'll put a link to this on our, on our episode as well, but uh, a couple of years ago, the Catholic Church hosted uh, a colloquium of marriage or big big conference about marriage and family um and uh, they invited other christian leaders from throughout from throughout the world president um eyring was invited because president monson's health was failing and so he went and there's this sweet two and a half minute mormon message with president eyring's testimony about marriage and family and here he is at the center of a church that has multiple billions of people in it um, I showed it to some students this week just to convey both the idea of President Eyring's specific feelings about marriage and family, but also the idea that we're not alone in what we feel about this. This is There are billions of people worldwide that believe that marriage is good and it needs to be protected and nourished and that this invention of God that unites man and woman is, uh, is something divine and something worth talking about, teaching about, testifying about, and saving. Okay, one of the questions threading throughout all of these scriptures that we read this week is the question of how to be great. Listen to this. This is at the end of Mark or Mark chapter 9, which was last week's study, but it helps to lead into this week's study. Verses 33 and 34. And when Jesus came to Capernaum, being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves, meaning the twelve, who should be the greatest. And he goes on then to respond to that question in chapter 10, verse 17. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running unto him and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? In other words, what do I need to do to be the greatest, to get to the greatest kingdom? Uh, Verse 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And it'll say later on in Luke, and what do we get for it? What do we get who have given this sacrifice? Don't we deserve to be great? Um, 
Verse 35 in Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatever we want. And he said to them, What would you that I should do to you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on the left hand in thy glory. Now, none of these questions are bad. Um, In fact, they're really compelling. What is it, Jesus, that I need to do to be truly great? Um, We were talking about this before, and I thought, if we were to pause the scripture study for a minute, if if we were to walk into a library and just do a quick search of books on the shelves um, for answers to that question, how do I achieve true greatness in this life, whether it's occupational greatness or individual greatness or family greatness, what would the answers be? You know, what comes to mind? Well, I'd almost like to hear what the first word is before I give my answer. What's like the first thing that comes to your mind when you ask that rhetorical question that I just turned into <laughs> a rhetorical question? can ask me. I asked you first. <laughs> um, well, maybe this is tainted by this week's study, but the word that comes to my mind is wealth. And I don't mean just money. I mean a wealth of whatever. In order to be truly great, I need to have a lot of something. And so I either need to have a lot of business success or a lot of notoriety, or I need to have a lot of um, popularity, or of course, a lot of money or a lot of vacation homes or a lot of time. Or it seems to be that the world equates greatness with the accumulation of some kind of wealth of a, of a resource of some sort. Yeah, that's kind of the first thing that came to my mind was maybe bigger and better. Hmm. In fact, we were even, I was talking with a friend this week about, you know, our generation tends to kind of push everything to the limits. It's like big birthday parties, big everything. Everything has to be a big deal, which holidays, birthday, I already said birthdays, but it's this idea that everything has to be very extravagant. And sometimes that is, well, not sometimes, that's exhausting. Yeah. I now have in my head, we will not link this in our show notes, but I have in my head the the song from The Lorax where he talks about biggering. Like I'm biggering my company, I'm biggering everything. And that that's, you know, that's Dr. Seuss's take or whoever made the movie, I guess. Illumination videos. That's their take or Sony, I don't remember. That's their take on this current rest in the world. In order to be great, I've got to bigger whatever it is that I've got or get more of something than someone else. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about that is that's that's almost exactly opposite of what Jesus's answer is. And so what we want to do is look at three answers that Jesus gave to these questions about how to be great. And as he does in so many other places, he gives this very ironic, completely surprising, revolutionary answer to how to be great. So the first one, in Mark chapter 9, um, his back in that chapter when his apostles come to him and he recognizes that they've been disputing about who's the greatest. Uh, this is verse 36. He took a child and set him in the midst of them. When he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. The answer being, if you want to be truly great, become like a child. And we know that. Um, interesting, as I was studying this week, I noticed in chapter 10, he gives the same answer, except the word changes a little bit. This is verse 13. They brought him, or they brought unto him young children, 
that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Now here's what's interesting. The word that Luke uses is infant. So here in Mark, of course it's true that we should become like children. But whenever I thought of that, I pictured these, you know, little kids, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, but it seems like what Jesus emphasizes in that next chapter and in Luke is, we're not just talking about little kids. We are talking about infants. This little child that is the greatest in the kingdom is this infant. And so what is it about an infant that makes him or her so great? What is it that we should aspire to or become like in order to be great? This reminds me of, well, just today, um, we were talking about in our Relief Society about prayer and why prayer. And the thing that came up was partly it's to show our, our dependence, to show our humility. And I really think that the perfect example of, of us being like children to our Father in Heaven is, is being like an infant. Hmm. They're completely dependent upon someone, and they really don't give back very much. <laughs> if you're lucky, a smile, right? Um, but that that is kind of how we are. Mm -hmm. When we really come with that much humility to God, that is who we are. We're like a, a babe in arms that really doesn't give anything, but is just looking for someone to nourish them and strengthen them and guide them because that's all that they can look to as a mother for those things. I think it's an interesting point that an infant's source of everything, their strength, their nourishment, uh, their mobility comes from a parent. And similarly, I th the scriptures emphasize this over and over, that to be prideful is to look to or rely on your own strength, your own wisdom, or your own success. To be humble, as President Uchtdorf once said, isn't to think less of yourself, but to think less about yourself and to think more about God. So to be truly humble isn't to say I'm such a horrible person. To be truly humble is to say everything I have and am, I recognize, comes from God. And if I need any blessing, I seek it at his hand rather than trying to wrestle it from my own toil and labor. It was last week. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't toil. They don't work. And Heavenly Father takes care of them. How much more won't he take care of you? little children, if you just stay with him, if you just reach out to him. Which I think makes the title of a father in heaven even mm -hmm. even more beautiful to think of your own relationship to parents, or if you're to your own parents, or if you're a parent, that I think it really enriches the process of thinking parent-child and can enrich your relationship with your father in heaven if you really, truly think of him in that way. So we're going to go back to a story that Zach already introduced us to in the beginning to answer this next question that Jesus answers of how to be great. And that is the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Um, we, he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus answered, like we said, keep the keep, the commandments, keep those basic things. Um, and the young man, of course, says, yep, I've done it. So what lack I yet? That famous phrase. And this is when Jesus answers him and says, If you want to be perfect, 
Go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. So basically Jesus says, do everything, get rid of everything and focus on me and follow me. It's an interesting answer. How do I be great? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've done all that. I have accumulated obedience and I've accumulated wealth. I'm successful. What am I missing? And Jesus's answer is, if you want to be perfect, go get rid of everything now. Sell everything. Again, it's not the accumulation of wealth. In fact, here's it's completely opposite. This is now the divestment of wealth. Get rid of everything that you have gained by your own wrestling and your own toil and come and follow me and become dependent on me uh, and I'll give you true greatness. I love that question, the what lack I yet question, because I think it's something that we can all continually ask ourselves and continually think about um, of how we need to be guided and directed when we're asking and truly seeking and asking Jesus what we lack. Um, he'll guide us and direct us. There was a talk in October of 2015 from Larry Lawrence um, entitled What Lack I Yet? And I love the way he illustrated um, some of these questions that that we can ask ourselves to be great. And I think in the world and spiritually too, um, he says, sometimes we have to ask for some difficult questions like, what do I need to change? How can I improve? What weakness needs strengthening? Um, and that as we're really seeking those things that God is going to be willing to teach us. And especially if we take that humility like a child and are teachable, that the spirit will really guide us and direct us to which direction and what things we need to improve in. Um, I love the, who was it that pointed out the Jesus looking at him loved him do you remember that oh yeah that's another conference talk is that the one you mean uh-huh mark ten twenty one. then jesus beholding him loved him and said to him one thing thou lackest that's actually another talk i think they reference both this larry lawrence talk and that's from elder palmer mm-hmm. so it's in your um both of these talks are in your Come follow, me, Come follow me for individuals curriculum but we'll also link them in our show notes because these talks are both such a beautiful wit telling of yeah. these of the story. I love the answer. Jesus says, you're right. You are missing one thing, but it's not something you need to acquire. It's something you need to give up. And so go sell all that you have, um, which the rich young man, of course, doesn't, walks away. And then Jesus gives that phrase that we often, I think, misconstrue where he says, it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, which if you're thinking about an eye of a needle, Uh, and a camel going through it, it might seem like Jesus is saying, this is impossible. No rich people can enter into heaven. He's not. The eye of a needle in in a lot of cities back then in Jerusalem, there were these larger gates through which animals, caravans would go through. But then there were these smaller gates that mostly people could go through that were called an eye of a needle. And so what Jesus is talking about with an eye of a needle is that it's, it's, easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than it is for rich man to enter heaven. A camel can get through the eye of a needle, but he has to get down on his knees and crawl through this small door. So basically you're seeing like 
this big animal gate and then a person gate kind of mm-hmm. a thing so they can fit but but it takes well, that's it takes humility and i think that's the message jesus is sending is you can't get to heaven if your life is so filled with all of the stuff that you've acquired you have to be willing to give it up and that's that's at the heart of christianity that's what separated christians from everyone else is that their their desire is i want to give up things for god and then he will give me in return. It was one of our sacrament speakers today that said, um, when we give something or give it up for God, he always gives us um, gives us that in return a hundredfold. Um, and so how do you be great? You give it up. And the more you give up, the more God gives you, the more greatness he gives you. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think of it um, relating back to that it all kind of come back comes back to that humility of a child because an infant also has no possessions. A child mm-hmm. has no possessions. And seeing a camel, I like that illustration of the camel too because it is not easy for a camel to get down on its knees and to bend its neck and and make it through that small hole. And sometimes we have to do things that are uncomfortable for us as we ask that question of what oh, lack yeah. I yet. Yeah. The last story is as just a brief one at the end of Luke 18, or in the middle of Luke 18, when Jesus says, there were two men that went into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee, who would have been someone that was recognized as great in that society, stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This is a man that has achieved great, quote-unquote, religious greatness. But Jesus then emphasizes, verse 13, the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Uh, Jesus says almost the exact same thing at the end of Matthew chapter 19, that those who are first or who put themselves first or who are rewarded first will be last. And those who are last, those who spend their days in humble service, in sacrifice to others, are the ones who will be greatest in the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening today. We're so grateful for your support and for um, the community that we get to build around these scriptures. And we hope that on your quest to be great, that you will invite God into your life to help you, to refine you, um, and to help your quest in greatness become something that can be a refining process. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great week.